You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, well, you know, with an introduction like that, uh, what do I really have to say? Um, I, you know, I was made known to the fact that I would probably be roasted, and as I have found out, I think even last week, your speaker, Robbie Day, even roasted me from the pulpit. You know, he said something to the fact that I was boring, which it might be true. You might find that to be the case. I might be boring. I'm not as cool as Robbie. I don't have these black rim glasses like he does, and I'm not as cool as Dave, whose beard could qualify for sainthood. Um, but the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing, though, about uh, Robbie last week, so I'll deal with him first, and then I'll deal with Dave. But the beautiful thing about Robbie is I understand one of you approached Robbie and said, hey, has anyone ever told you that he looked like Rob Bell? And so Robbie is so ridiculous. It's, uh, I don't even need to roast him because he just sort of self-roasts, if that makes sense. Um, now, as far as Dave dealing with this whole Baptist, Presbyterian kind of stuff, here's the deal. You'll notice that I'm the first Presbyterian to preach from this pulpit. That's because, being a Presbyterian, I know how to deal with the Reformation rightly. So it's about time they called on someone who knows and understands the solas as they really were. So, indeed, I, I am proud to serve you and your congregation in this way. But, uh, yes, in all seriousness, I, I'm super excited to be here. I have not had this opportunity and uh, I, I'm just excited to be with you, uh, beloved brothers and sisters. And uh, I sincerely appreciate and love Dave. Uh, I want you to know, as if you don't already, but I want you to be reassured. Dave loves you. And you are loved by him. And uh, what an amazing pastor and shepherd that is. Indeed, a shepherd after Christ's own heart. And so I'm thankful uh, that we can be buddies. At least I think we're buddies. I don't know about all of that stuff you said earlier, but uh, I am truly excited and uh, humbled to be a part of this. And so, yeah, we are looking to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and it is a big deal. And if you're not familiar with the history surrounding the Protestant Reformation, please familiarize yourself with it as it is uh, deeply inspiring and deeply devotional to see the devotion that these guys had uh, for the truth. But the reality of the Protestant Reformation is really that we're reaffirming what the church has historically believed. And so this is kind of a, a really exciting time for us um, as Protestants. And so I'm, I'm uh, grateful to be a part of this this evening. And so I'll speak to you tonight a little bit about the sola, sola gratia, which is by God's grace alone. And indeed, I was excited about this topic, but at the same time, I was very nervous about this topic, as we should be. Anytime that we're presenting God's scripture and interacting with the word of God, this is a very serious thing. We're dealing with the word of the God of the universe, the God who has revealed to us what he wants us to know pertaining to truth and life and devotion to him. And so with that, I want you to know it is a joy and a sincere honor to be with you this evening and to open God's Word with you. So with that, please turn in your Bibles with me to the third chapter of Romans. We're going to look at verses 20 through 26, but we're going to particularly emphasize verses 23 through 25. So kind of put your finger there. Now, in light of the Protestant Reformation, I suppose on one hand it might be 
a good thing to really go into the history and talk about the history behind the Reformation, and particularly the idea of by God's grace alone. But I know that if any of the Reformers were here, they would tell you one thing. If you want to know about the grace of God, go to the Scriptures. In fact, I presume that Robbie taught you well last week uh, about Sola Scriptura. And indeed, Robbie is one of my uh, dearest friends, and so I know you were in good hands with him. So tonight, what I'll do is not so much focus on the history of the Protestant Reformation, as important and as necessary as that might be, but I want to walk you through this concept by looking at the Word of God, and at the end, we will wrap up by looking at a few quotes from church history to sort of highlight what the Scripture is teaching. And so, there are two goals this evening that I really want to get across. Primarily, I just want to at least remind you That you are loved by God, and as God's people, He has called you out of this world to be in relationship to Him and devotion to Him. You are loved, my dear brothers and sisters, and there's no better reminder of that than looking at the grace of God. And so one thing that I at least want to do this evening is to remind you of God's love for you that is demonstrated in His grace. But secondly, I want to challenge you this evening, as I myself am challenged by looking at this concept of grace. Now, on one side of the coin, grace sends us into a a time of praise and rejoicing because of the goodness of God and His mercy to us. We see the realities of God's grace and all the goodness that that encompasses. But there's another side of the coin. God's grace has a very violent component to it. God's grace, as beautiful as it is, comes at a cost. And that cost is a very violent cost. And so what that should do is to send us into a time of weeping because of our sin. And what it should do is help us to take our sin seriously. And I think you understand what I'm saying when we look at what Paul is communicating to us in Romans chapter 3. But overall, beloved, my prayer is that you as God's people will come to Him with much praise and thanksgiving, for indeed our God is a gracious God. And so with that, let's look at our sermon text, Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Please hear God's word for revolution this evening. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask for your help this evening to hear your word, to soak it in, to have our minds changed and our hearts enlightened, 
that we might not forsake the eternal redemption that was purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. We ask for your help this evening to recognize the seriousness of your grace, but also at the same time the seriousness of our sin. And I, we pray for your help that as a result you would grant to us repentance so that we might forsake that sin and turn to Christ. For He is our only hope. He is our only security in redemption. And for that we are grateful this evening. Father, pour out your blessings on this people this evening. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now before diving into this text to really understand what Paul is communicating in Romans chapter 3, I want to connect it to the Old Testament because there is something about what Paul is doing that finds its foundation in the Old Testament. Now there are many places in which you can do this, but one place I want to begin is in the book of Ezekiel. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Ezekiel 36, and we're going to look at verses 22 through 27. And if you don't have the scripture, that's fine, just just listen to this. It's kind of lengthy, but I think there's something important here for us to understand. This is God's word to Israel. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle... (laughs) Sprinkle? Yeah. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." Beloved, this passage is one of many of which Paul finds his foundation for saying what he says in our sermon text. And there are primarily four things that we need to concern ourselves with to prepare us for what Paul is teaching. Number one, notice that God is not acting to save or redeem the Israelites because they somehow deserve it. In fact, if you ask what typically the definition of grace is, What's the definition that you will hear? It's unmerited favor or undeserved favor. God is not acting because the Israelites somehow deserved that. In fact, they far from deserved that. He says, you've profaned my name among the nations, yet I will do this. Second, and one of the reasons why God is doing it, is for the glory of his own name. So why is he cleansing and, and restoring his people? So that he will look good. That he will look famous and have glory among the nations. Third, you'll notice, it is God himself and of none other that the people of God will be cleansed and given a new heart by which to obey. It is God's work alone that he has grace on the Israelites to restore them and to cleanse them. And fourth, 
Although the purpose is for God's glory, there is a particular purpose for us. And that purpose is that we might obey God's commandments. How about that? God is acting to cleanse a people that is not deserving of it. He's doing it that His glory might be made known to the nations. He Himself is doing it, which no one else can do for themselves. God is doing it, and He's doing it so that we might obey Him. There's something about that obedience that we ought to pursue. There's something that's naturally good about obeying God, and yet God is doing this. Here's the point, beloved. Why even quote this passage? The passage is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is demonstrating to us in Romans 3. The grace of God as revealed in Jesus Christ has been the point of redemptive history for a millennia. So when we read in Ezekiel about God cleansing His people, about giving them a new heart and putting His Spirit within them, where does that happen? It happens in Jesus Christ and none other. That is the essence of God's grace. And so let's unpack God's grace this evening. Let's unpack that essence. And there are two points. Point one, it's a very simple point. That God's grace is given freely to us as a gift. And we learn this in verses 23 and 24 of our passage. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but by God's grace as a gift... We have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now this is the heart of what grace is. And in fact, if you look in Paul's construction of how he, of how he talks about grace being a gift, he says it's something like this. He says, it's a free gift that is freely given. Now think about that. A free gift which is freely given. That's a bit odd. Why the redundancy? Why... Why hit on the fact that it's a free gift, which is freely given? Isn't a gift by nature something free? So why the redundancy in Paul? And it's important that we don't miss this. The redundancy is because he's saying this is something so profound, don't miss this fact, that God's grace is freely given as a free gift. There's something intrinsically important about it that doesn't happen anywhere else except in and through the grace of God. Now, to understand this, consider what we find in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. And this is really why Paul is writing the letter to to the Roman church. He is explaining to the Roman church the gospel. What is the gospel? And this is what he says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, here's the point. In reference to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, he says this, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now what's important about this? What is he saying one of the most important components of the gospel is? That in the gospel, the righteousness of God is made known. Well, what is the righteousness of God? If you look at the first three chapters of Romans, Paul goes into great detail to tell us how sinful we really are. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither Jew who has been given the law or Gentile who does not have the law. There is none who are not sinful. And the essence of righteousness comes from obeying God's law perfectly. 
But what's the problem? Can we do that? Can we obey God's law sinlessly? That's the dilemma. Paul says if you, you need to have righteousness, but that is righteousness. That God's law is obe- obediently fulfilled and we are sinless. But that presents a problem. We're not sinless. In fact, our heart, we worship idols constantly. In fact, our heart is given over to idol worship. Calvin, for example, says our heart is a perpetual idol factory, constantly clinging to things that would take our attention away from God. So then, if the gospel comes and is about the righteousness and the righteousness of God is being obedient to God's law sinlessly, how can we do that? We can't. And so what's the solution? So it's not that we obey God's law perfectly because we can't. And Jesus has told us to break one law makes you guilty of transgressing them all. So what's Paul's solution? He says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. All cannot obtain the righteousness of God because of our sin. And we fall short continually of the glory of God. But, he says, we are justified by His grace. This is how we obtain the righteousness of God. We obtain it by the grace of God, which is freely given to us as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, that is vital. That is vital. So how are we to obtain the righteousness of God? We can't. It's God's doing by His grace through the redemption that comes in knowing Jesus Christ. So incredibly, this is what he means. This is a gift which is freely given from God, His grace. So when we reflect on the concept of grace alone, this is what we mean. This is an act freely done to us by God Himself. However, it's a particular grace. It's a grace that comes to us through redemption in Christ Jesus. Apart from the redemption of Christ Jesus, you cannot obtain grace anywhere else. There is no grace of God available apart from the redemption in Jesus Christ. So beloved, that's why we're here presumably this morning or this evening to worship God, to respond in praise and thanksgiving for the grace of which He's displayed to us in and through Jesus Christ. Is that not why we're here? That's reason for us to rejoice. And to rejoice abundantly. Dear brothers and sisters, you should be smiling because of God's grace to you this evening. That is cause for rejoice. That is cause for celebration. However, There is a difficult aspect to this that we have to understand. And if we understand rightly this difficult aspect of God's grace, it should make us rejoice even more. So let's look at that in point two. God's grace, though it is freely given, comes at a cost. Now that's kind of another irony. How is it that a gift which is freely given also costs something? Well, beloved, it has not costed you anything. You have not paid for this, but someone has. And it's Christ Himself. 
So remember, Paul says we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And beloved, please know that the redemption that was purchased in Christ was a violent redemption. And now let's look at this. So the reality which should bring us ultimately to shed tears because of our sin is the fact that God's grace is freely given to us because Christ is our propitiation. Now, I know that's a big word, and I know that might be intimidating, but you should know this word, and I trust that you do. I know that Dave is big about propitiation. It's because you should be. Propitiation is an important thing. It's in the Bible, if you, at least if you read the right translation, which is ESV. Right? Are you guys ESV only in this church? <laughs> yeah. Amen. All right. But we need to understand this, this idea of propitiation. And so you may know the meaning, but that Christ as our propitiation, he stood in our place condemned, and he turned the wrath of God away from us. This is what a propitiation is, turning God's wrath away. Now there is another concept which goes hand in hand with propitiation. It's called expiation. The idea of then taking our sin away from us. And Christ is our propitiation and our expiation. Even though we may be familiar with this language, what precisely does it look like for Christ to be our propitiation? And that's the aspect we need to understand. Traditionally, propitiation has come to be known in relation to the idea of the mercy seat. And this is an Old Testament concept. The mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat that represented atonement for the sins of the people. We read this in Leviticus 16. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. First thing that the priest has to do is atone for his own sins. Slaughters the bull, sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. Now he can make atonement for, his, for the sins of the people. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sin. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting what dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. So when Paul says that Christ is our propitiation, what is he meaning? He means this, that Christ is the mercy seat of God. It is at Christ and in Christ with the sprinkling of Christ's blood that our sin is forever atoned for. It was the payment of Christ's blood that makes God's grace a freely given gift to you, beloved. 
Christ is the mercy seat. And His blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat so that you might have redemption. Hebrews 9 tells us, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood. Guys, do you see this? The goats were slaughtered so that their blood might be sprinkled on the mercy seat. But here's the difference. It's Christ's blood that is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And He is the mercy seat of God. But it was by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? famous Bible commentator says this, speaking of Christ, He is our throne of grace. Now put this in your mind. Christ is our throne of grace, in and through whom atonement is made for sin, and our persons and performances are accepted of God. Why? Because Christ is the mercy seat. He is all in all in our reconciliation. Not only the maker, but the matter of it. Our priest, our sacrifice, our altar, our all. God was in Christ as in His mercy seat, reconciling the world unto Himself. This is God's grace. This is the violent aspect of God's grace. If you're familiar with the sacrifices of the Old Testament, picture, if you can, a goat or a lamb with its throat slit the blood that is gushing out and would have been a mess all over the priest's robes and all over the altar. This is the image of Christ as our propitiation. His blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat so that God's wrath would be turned away from you. It is by this sacrifice that we are able to be righteous before God. Now, think about this. Paul says that the gospel is about the righteousness of God and we can't have the righteousness of God by by being obedient to His law because of our sin. What does it take? It takes Jesus' death and the sprinkling of His blood on the mercy seat for you to have righteousness, for you to do the things that you should have done in obedience to God. This is grace, beloved. And we cannot, therefore, have righteousness apart from the free gift of God's grace. So I hope you see that. Now, in conclusion, we'll spend a few moments here on some application. What then are we to conclude from all of this? What should our response be to this reality? Well, there are at least four things that I think we should consider, and definitely probably more. Number one, we are to rejoice Beloved, this is reason for us to rejoice if 
God had not graciously offered His Son as your propitiation, we would still be in our sin. We would have to give an account for our sin. We would have to pay for it. But Christ has paid for it. What other reason do you need to rejoice? Paul says this in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is one reality. Because of Christ's propitiation, you have peace with God. You are no longer enemies of God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And the conclusion, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Beloved, this rejoicing that we ought to have is a deep-seated rejoicing. Not the kind of rejoicing where we might be tempted to say, yay, team God, go God. Talking about the kind of rejoicing that you're able to have even in times of hardship, even in times of struggle. And I'm talking not just stubbing your toe on the couch kind of stuff. I'm talking like life-altering stuff that we are able to rejoice because of Christ's propitiation, we have a hope. That's incredible stuff. We can rejoice. Secondly, as our Lord teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, we are to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What do we mean by this? To be poor in spirit means that we understand the reality of our sin and the cost of our sin. And so really what our sin should make us do is it should drive us to weep because of it. When we sin, it's not just a mistake. It is an affront to the glory of God and His grace to us in Jesus Christ. Sin takes our focus away from His mercy in Jesus Christ. We should weep because of our sin. We should hate sin. And since we're talking about this in light of the Reformation, John Owen's famous quote, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Right? Be poor in spirit. Weep because of our sin. Don't take sin lightly. Third, and I really think this is an important aspect. I mean, I think it's expressly stated in the New Testament to such an extent that we ought to heed its words here. We are to fear. To understand Christ as our propitiation, to understand the cost of that propitiation, we should then in turn fear for example, Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, And if you call on Him as Father, so if you call God Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, church, believers, if you're calling on God as Father in your Christian life, you need to conduct yourselves with fear, is what he's saying. Why? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The mercy seat. The blood of the lamb that was sprinkled. Peter says, you need to live your life 
fearing that you would ever profane that blood. That takes the blood of Christ seriously. We should live in fear in the sense that if I sin, I will be profaning the blood of the covenant, thereby making God not look glorious, thereby not recognizing His grace to us as a gift, taking things into my own hands, worshiping idols. You need to fear that. Because here's also, also the other side of this, the potentially sad reality. You have Pastor Dave every week declaring the whole counsel of God to you. Amen to that. God is being gracious to you in that. But here's the reality, beloved. You need to respond in faith. You have now all become more accountable of the grace of God from hearing this. And if you don't turn and repent from your sin, and if you are not forsaking what God has saved you out of, destruction only lies ahead. That's what we should fear. When Jesus said, there will be many in that day who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and do marvelous things in your name? And what does Jesus say to them? I don't know who you are. Away from me. That is scary. And so to recognize the seriousness and the extent of Christ's propitiation should drive us to have that fear. Fourth, we are to be obedient. Now this is ultimately the conclusion. So remember when we were looking at the Ezekiel passage, why did God do, why was God going to do what He said He was going to do? So that we might obey His statutes and His commandments. Well, Paul says this, In Romans 3, verses 27, 28, and 31, he says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So what is God in His grace doing to the propitiation of Christ. He is enabling you to begin being obedient to Him as you should have been from the start. Obedience to God is a good thing. And more than just simple obedience. We should desire to be obedient to Him because of what He's done for us. When we look at God and we look at Jesus Christ, our hearts should be overfilled with affections that we would fear and hate profaning His name at all. In fact, why we're obedient is because we love Him. And we know that what He is commanding for us is for our good. It's not simply God's top ten classroom rules for you to follow. Guys, if you want to flourish in life, if you want to be fulfilled as an image bearer of God and to live life with its purpose and what God intended, be obedient to God, therefore you're good. The commandments are for your good and your edification and your growth. Now, there are many more things, I suppose, we could say by way of application, but those are at least four. So I hope that this has shed at least just a tiny bit of light on the concept of grace and the seriousness of grace and that it is by God's grace freely given to you through Christ's redemption that you can have new life. So we should respond in faith. In fact, we should have no choice but to respond in faith. 
But now as I conclude, I suppose it wouldn't be a reference to the Reformation if I didn't at least quote some people throughout church history. So I have several quotations that I'd like to share with you just from people throughout church history. And they're not necessarily reformers or during that time. But this goes to show you the continuity of the historical church through all the ages as it pertains to the grace of God. The first one comes from St. Augustine. God bids us do what we cannot, that we may know what we ought to seek from Him. In other words, God's commandments are difficult to follow. But because we can't follow them apart from His grace, that drives us to seek from Him His grace. Beloved, that's a lesson for the Christian life. When there's an insurmountable task, what does that drive us to do? To ask God for grace to perform the task. Richard Sibbs, Puritan. God knoweth we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, he requireth no more than he giveth, and giveth what he requireth, and accepteth what he giveth. In other words, even though he is requiring things for us, I know Richard Sibbs says here, no more than what he giveth. He gives us grace to surmount those things. That's his point, that by God's grace we're able to do what God is commanding because He gives us the grace to do that. And of course, what would this talk be without a reference to Martin Luther? Luther says, speaking of Paul and Titus, he says, So he, Paul, discards all boasted free will, all human virtue, righteousness, and good works. He concludes that they are all nothing and are wholly perverted, however brilliant and worthy they may appear, and teaches that we must be saved solely by the grace of God, which is effective for all believers who desire it from a correct conception of their own ruin and nothingness. How about that? Thanks, Luther. As we contemplate our own worthlessness in the sight of God and our own ruin because of our sin, all the more do we need the grace of God to overcome that. William Greenhill, he was a divine, a member of the Westminster Assembly, God's authoritative confession, by the way. Westminster Confession, so anyway. William Greenhill says this, Some make grace the thing. Now what he's saying here is we focus on the goodness and grace of God, but he's saying that's too broad. It's not just grace by itself. He says, but that is too general. Unless... We limit it to the blood of Christ, which of grace is given to wash sinners with. In other words, how are we to understand God's grace? Only in relation to the blood of Christ. God does not give redemptive grace apart from Jesus Christ. Of course, I wouldn't be a good Presbyterian without quoting the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question and answer 20. Question, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. In short, God's grace in our redemption. And last... A quote from Horatio Bonar's hymn says this, and this is a hymn. 
Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break? No other work save thine, no other blood will do, no strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. So indeed, as we reflect on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, shouldn't be any secret why the Reformers emphasized the grace of God alone. As Scripture boldly declares that it is by God's grace alone that we can have redemption in Jesus Christ. That by God's grace you are given as a gift freely given to you new life in Jesus Christ. So beloved, as we conclude this evening this portion of the worship service, please know that God has called you out of this world by His grace to make His name famous and to give Him the glory, to forsake your sin, to repent and turn from it, to embrace Jesus Christ, and all of that for the glory of God alone. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, indeed, let us emphasize that. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you have stoked the fires of our mind and our passions with what Paul is teaching us in Romans chapter 3, that it is by your grace alone that we have redemption in Jesus Christ. And as we reflect now together on that grace, as we respond in song, help us to be able to rejoice in light of that grace, but also to see the depth and the profundity of that grace. The fact that by your grace... We have redemption through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who is our mercy seat, whose blown blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat so that there is no wrath left for us. Indeed, Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to forsake our sin, bear the fruit of repentance, and bring glory to the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.